We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. We are a few weeks into a series through the book of Ephesians. We finished up Mark after 80 some odd sermons. And now we're moving through Ephesians, which will take considerably less. Although it's a very dense book, and so sometimes these messages are a little bit longer than normal because I'm trying to move through this book in such a way that we're not uh, four years in it. But this is incredibly dense, powerful, awesome stuff. Um, I'm going to read the scripture, verses 15 to 23, and then kind of teach through it. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, a little review. Paul, here in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, he's building on themes that he's established in the first three verses in the book where he's kind of addressed the question, he's, he's writing to a group of Christians and he's telling them who they are, where they are, and what they have. He's addressing their identity and the mission and the resources for that mission so that they can fulfill that calling. So he says, who you are, you are a saint in Christ. You used to be identified as a sinner. Now you are in Christ and you are a saint. You do sin sometimes, but your fundamental identity has changed. You're no longer a sinner. You are a saint who sins. So when you sin, it's not who you are. It's just simply something that you've done. Now live into your new identity as a holy one set apart for God's mission in the world. And that mission is this. You are in the world and in Christ. Remember Mickey Mouse? You're, you're in Christ in the world. You have a different role to play. You have a mission. You are to be an ambassador of the kingdom. You are to live in such a way that through creativity, joy, faithfulness, patience, um, love for God and for neighbor, you point people towards a different kingdom, a different reality that can be experienced here and now in and through Jesus. And what has God given you to fulfill that mission. He's given you every spiritual blessing that you need. And, and last week, Paul lists a few of those spiritual blessings. But he says, you've been given every spiritual blessing. God hasn't sent you into this mission with a few little tools. But you're going to have to find your own stop gaps along the way. Everything you need as a church to fulfill the mission, to be in Nelson and in Christ, at the same time, you have. Remember how last week I talked about verses 3 to 14 is the, is the longest Greek sentence. It's like 202 words. It's broken up into sentences in our Bible, but in the Greek, it's just one long sentence, a uh, monstrous word conglomeration. Verses 15 to 23 is the same thing. It's broken up into sentences for intelligibility and readability's sake, 
uh, for the English context, in the Greek, it's one continuous sentence. So Ephesians, although we're stopping and breaking things up, it begins with two very powerful, one is an epic kind of praise rant, and then this is a kind of prayer that Paul is praying. But he's, he, he's, he's, uh, he has to get it all out. There's this tremendous uh, urgency and passion and almost desperation to get these truths into the lives of the Ephesians. Verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Just, I'm just going to highlight a few uh, takeaways for each thing because there's a lot here, but I'm not going to be able to go super deep in a lot of them. Notice that Paul is invested in the growth of Christians who are not in his immediate uh, local church context. He's writing to the Ephesians. He definitely has, he has a vested interest. He established a church and kind of discipleship training ground there eight years prior to the writing of this letter, but he's thousands of kilometers away. He's eight years removed from these people. Most of the people he doesn't know personally because he says, I've heard about your faith, but he doesn't mention anybody by name, but he's still invested. He wants them to be growing. He's not just about his own little uh, immediate holy huddle. He has a grand vision. I think that's so, so awesome. Other Christians might have been out of uh, sight for Paul, but they weren't out of mind. He says, uh, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. And this is actually totally something that you can read over and be like, okay, yeah, that's great. Paul was a cheerleader, whatever. Let's keep going. But I want you to think about the context of this and how much of a challenge this is for you and I as it relates to can I genuinely celebrate when God is doing amazing things in the lives of other Christians, but I don't experience those same things myself? Can I rejoice in others spiritually advancing and God doing amazing things and inroads to the gospel? And, you know, do I as a pastor, do I celebrate when other churches are doing really well, other ministries are doing well, if that same growth isn't happening in my church? Do we celebrate when God is doing something awesome in a family over here when we don't see that same thing happening here? Because remember the context. Paul is saying, I haven't stopped giving thanks to you. I'm just so pumped for you guys. I'm under house arrest in Rome. Life is not good for me. It is way less than ideal, but that doesn't stop me because my joy in Jesus isn't simply bound to how's life working out for me. Is God powerfully at work in my life? Do I see God powerfully at work? Am I walking in fullness of life? I've got a Roman soldier chained to my arm. I can't go anywhere without him. I'm not living abundant life, but I want that for you, Ephesians. And I hear that that's happening. That's awesome. I think that's an amazing challenge of how Paul was operating with this big kingdom vision and this big kingdom heart. And I have to confess, there's so many times in my life where I get stuck in seeing the lack in my own life. And maybe, maybe I'm, um, I don't know if wise is the right word, but maybe I, I know that I shouldn't complain about it to God. But it prevents me from entering into joy when I see other people flourishing in the faith, even though I'm going through a hard time. Paul says, I keep asking, in verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
here's a little tip and trick for you. If you are ever struggling with what to pray for someone and you're lost for words, just pray verse 17. I do it actually often. I often pray it for my kids. I often pray it for myself. If I don't know what to pray, I say, God, will you give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I can know you better? If you don't know what to pray for students that are on chick conference or people in your life, whether they're in the hospital going through a good time or a bad time or somewhere in between, this is a prayer that ports into any situation and is powerful. And notice that Paul is praying that the Ephesians might know God better. Now, the word for relational knowing in Greek is gnosis, and that does refer to a kind of a relational knowing, not just abstract theory, but a knowing. But Paul intensifies it by adding um, the prefix epi, as an epiphany, highest of, or a, a, a grand intensification of. So he's saying, I want you to have epinosis. I want you to have epi-knowledge of God, meaning um, what one commentator called contact knowledge. Um, knowledge gained through an intimate first-hand experience. Right? We, we might say, well, I don't want you to just know things about God. I want you to know God. But it's more than that. It's more than just, I don't want you to just know God in like a, yeah, like, I know God, and that's kind of good. I want you to know God, and he's going to come back to this in Ephesians 5, in the kind of intimacy that is revealed in the um, sexual coming together of a husband and a wife. There is a tremendous stress here on the ability for the Ephesians to know Jesus in an imminently personal way and Paul's desire for them to pursue that kind of relationship. He doesn't want them to settle for kind of a superficial experience of the presence and power of Jesus in their lives. So this isn't really a prayer for a second blessing. Some people will, will read the text like that. Um, and, he's, and Paul isn't praying that they would get, in a sense, um, more of the Holy Spirit. He's already said, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's a gift that's been given to you. It's, it's a grammatical way of saying, you've been given a gift, but this gift is kind of the gift that keeps on giving. You have it, but as you enter into it and as you further unpack it, there's an inexhaustible uh, expanding spiral of depth that this side of heaven you just won't be able to get to the bottom of. And I don't want you to go the first ring around that circle of knowledge and say, oh yeah, I kind of, I get the Bible and I get Christian life. Like, that's good. I'm good. Paul says, keep going. There are ever-expanding dimensions of the truth and love and grace and power of meaning, of purpose, of intimacy, of joy, of knowledge that we have available to us in Jesus. And so I pray that the Spirit, in a sense, will continually give you wisdom and revelation that the truth of who God is as he reveals it through his scriptures, as you apply it to your lives, as you live in love together and worship together, that your experience of life will be a growing expansion of both breadth and depth of the glory of God. That's on offer to you. You don't have to settle for superficial Christianity. So it's like Christianity is sort of like a Russian nesting doll. This could be one way to think about it, right? You are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, like, wow, that's awesome. And Paul's like saying, oh yeah, like that's just a start. Like you should like check this out. Like, whoa, I didn't even know that was in there. That's amazing. And Paul's like, yeah, it totally is amazing. But you know what? You should totally check this out. 
are you kidding me? Is that in there too? This is awesome. And it goes on and on and on. And I don't think we have time to undo all these because, Melanie, you were saying the one that's in here, maybe I'll do it with the kids after the service, is about the size of a grain of uh, rice, you said. So that's how small this can go. And this is even a terrible illustration because this has a finite ending. You can't exhaust it. You could keep opening these up to the point where they're, quote-unquote, done. But Paul says it's not like that in your life in the Spirit. You can take, just take any topic, Scripture, mission, your own self-understanding and sense of calling, how to apply your faith in the workplace, um, how your faith should uh, change and challenge your view of your body and how you use it sexually. Uh, God's glory and goodness, how to creatively serve your neighbor. Take any one of those subjects, you could study them and apply them for your whole life and still be discovering new things. And that's why I would be so bold as to say it's impossible to be bored if you are a growing Christian. It's impossible to be bored if you're a growing Christian. You can be bored as a Christian who says, I have simply put the brakes on growing and learning, but you can't be bored because there are an infinite branching um, applic application and revelation as it relates to heart, soul, mind, and strength and the things of God that every day and every week and every season of our life, God is inviting us into a deeper understanding. And again, not just like, hmm, more knowledge tucked in my brain. No, epinosis, contact knowledge, of who God is, who we are, how we're called to live, and that knowledge being customized to you in your particular situation, your season of life. And that's part of why we always come back to these core disciplines of coming together on Sunday to worship, reading our Bibles, praying together, confessing our sins and our issues with one another and supporting each other, bearing one another's burdens, learning to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we are challenged and encouraging each other to keep going and to not settle for a stagnant or status quo or superficial Christianity. So his big vision is, is he says, Ephesians, I want you to know God better. But he has three kind of dimensions. There's three specifics that he gets into in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So first of all, the word that he uses for enlightenment is photizo, from which we get photo, photograph, and it means to illuminate something, to shine an external source that shines on something so that you can actually see it for what it is and you can navigate it or read it or you know, walk through a room without you know, stumbling on something. Paul says, you are in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit but you need illumination. You don't just magically, when you become a Christian, see everything to the full extent that you can see it. You're still walking in a lot of darkness because God is leading you out of the kingdom of darkness. He saved you from it, but the power of sin is still at work in your life. And so your eyes are darkened, and God needs to illumine you. I think of uh, Kevin Drieger's sermon from... Uh, I want to say a few months back, but it might be much longer than that now, when he talked about Jesus healing the blind man, but it's the, it's the one where Jesus heals in stages, where it isn't just touch the eyes, oh, now I can see. It's I touch the eyes, what do you see? Oh, I see like 
uh, trees walking, and then Jesus heals him again. And it's this idea that our spiritual growth, coming to understand who we are, who God is, how we're called to live, it's a process. We don't just get it. It's not like the Holy Spirit just zaps us. It's not like the matrix, right? We plug in, you're like, oh, I know Kung Fu. It's like, oh, I know to be Christ-like in every way and everything about everything. No, it doesn't happen like that. The Spirit illumines us. It sheds light on our understanding, but it does so in a way that is gracious and gentle with us so that it can be a process, so that it's not overwhelming. I've had over, is it 10 now? I don't know. It's somewhere around 10. Eye surgeries on my eyes. Cut, things put in, things taken out. Lots of corneal transplants. Cut the front of my eye, take it off, put on someone else's cornea, stitch it. Corneal transplants are different today because the technology's come a long way. But when I did it, one of the things you have to expect after you've had a corneal transplant is you have massive light sensitivity. You have to wear sunglasses all the time, usually even inside. Um, you might, might have a lamp on in the corner, but your, light, but your eyes are so sensitive because of the new cornea. And I thought that's kind of a good illustration of what's happening in, um, in terms of when we become a Christian but have to grow in our ability to allow the Holy Spirit to illumine what's in front of us. Because when I receive the new corneas, I have new eyes, technically. But there has to be a process of calibration. And I can't just walk out into the noonday sun and be like, wow, my eyes, this is amazing. I have to allow healing to take place. And what the body does is it slowly heals my eyes to the extent that I can allow for more and more light in my life. And that's kind of what's happening with the Spirit. We become Christians. We are saved. We have the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, in a sense, knows how much intensity we can take. So the Holy Spirit is very gracious to us, and he leads us into a process where he's slowly illumining things in our life. Think about how overwhelming it would be if you became a Christian, and the moment that you did, God opened your eyes to the sum totality of the rest of your life, what was going to happen, how God was going to cause you to grow, all of it. Like, God actually showed you, in a sense, the whole plan. Some of you were like, that would be awesome. That would not be awesome. You would collapse, you would crumple uh, under the, uh, just being overwhelmed at what that was going to lead you into, what it was going to demand of you, even the awesome stuff. You're like, I can't handle all this. So God leads us slowly. He illumines our heart. Spiritual growth is a process of gradual illumination. So following Jesus is really a commitment to saying, Jesus, today I'm going to follow you, and as I do, Give me a little bit more light. Open the eyes of my heart that I can see these things. But there are three focal points that Paul's prayer um, kind of lands on, and that is hope, riches, and power. Paul says, I want God to kind of bring your heart to, a, to a illumination, but specifically around these three things. Number one, the hope to which he has called you. Paul says, Ephesians, I want you to live knowing that you have a sure and certain hope. And that does have applications to this life here and now, but in the context of the book of Ephesians, it's very clear Paul is saying this hope that is grounded that this life, this age, is not all there is. And you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you in a new heavens and new earth. He's talked about that in verses 3 to 14. The Holy Spirit is your Erebon. It's your deposit. You've gotten a foretaste. You've been sealed now. You are owned by God. And the Holy Spirit is a, 
a deposit that guarantees the full payment. It's a down payment, but the full down payment is coming. Paul's saying, I want you to know the hope that you have for eternity with God in a renewed and restored world. And if you are in Christ, that means your story ends with the happiest of endings. And it also means that your best moments in this life, like your mountaintops, are just a pale comparison to what God holds in store for you in the age to come. And when that settled, when God, when the Holy Spirit illumines that in your heart, even a little bit, if you just get a little bit of light on that truth, that gives you a very different disposition through which to move into this life and handle the hardships of life, knowing that there's an inheritance that is coming down the pipe for you that is beyond your imagination's ability to hold it. Number two, he says, I want you to understand the riches of his, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Super easy to pass over. Most of us will read that as God's riches, the riches of his glorious inheritance for the saints, because he's kind of said that in verse one, that the Holy Spirit is a deposit, the rest of the inheritance is coming, so God wants you to know the riches, but that's not what he's saying, because he's already established that in verse one. He's already said, you have an inheritance that's for you. He wants the Ephesians to understand something different. He's saying, I want you to understand the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. God's inheritance, meaning what is coming down the pipe for God's future, is eternity with you. And Paul says, I want you to understand that you are God's treasure. You're the thing that God's looking forward to spending eternity with. God can't wait until eternity, new heavens and a new earth, moving into an eternity full of joy, and you can be known in a way that um, God can't know you right now because we live in an overlap of the ages, the age of sin and the inbreaking kingdom of God, but because of the presence of sin, there is still a separation in our experience of God. We see through a glass dimly, Paul will say. Paul says, I want you to understand that you're God's inheritance. God has his inheritance in the saints, in the church. God owns everything. The earth is the Lord and, everything's in, and everything in it. He is the creator of all. There's the creator and creation, everything else. He owns it. But the thing that he treasures most is you. If the Holy Spirit just illumined, just shone a little bit more light on that truth in your heart, if that was the only thing you got out of this whole book, it could absolutely change your life. Like really, if it was made real to you. Because it is a dreadful thing to live believing you are of little consequence to anybody. But a lot of people live believing that, believing that they're of little consequence to anybody. Knowing that God treasures you, that you are the inheritance that he is looking forward to spending eternity with, can bring about more healing and joy than years of therapy and processing. And I'm you know, I'm a psychology undergrad. I'm big into therapy. I'm talking about all these things. But this is so tectonic and underneath those things. To know, to know, to know, to have epignosis. That 
you are treasured by God, not as an idea, but as contact knowledge, can just transform your life and give you the courage to move into the world, give you the courage to continue on in therapy and in relationships and to do all these other things. It can be the axis upon which your whole life can change. Paul says, I want you to know how treasured by God you are. And thirdly, he says, I want you to know the incomparably great power for us who believe. And so what Paul does is he stacks a number of synonyms for power five times through verse 19. He says, I want you to know his incomparably great power, dynamis, for us who believe. That power, kratos, is like the working, energia, of his mighty strength, iscus. Five words. He's not talking about five different kinds of power. He's using synonyms to just get at how um, expansive this idea of power is. So when he says dynamis, that's a word from which we get dynamite. It indicates raw power or strength. Working is energia, from which we derive our word energy, which means an inworking or a sense of inner propulsion being pushed from the inside out. Mighty, kratos, means ability to conquer. And there's some of you guys out there playing God of War. That's the connection. Kratos, God of War, the ability to conquer. That's where we get the word autocrat from, autokratos, one who can conquer by decree. And strength, iscus, refers to physical force. So Paul is trying to say it's hard to get at the kind of power that we have in Christ. So I'm just going to throw all these different words at you that are standing for power, and that'll kind of get proximal to where we're going. I want you to know the unparalleled power that's available in Christ. And then he describes the power. He says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, seated him at the place of ultimate authority over all things. How powerful is the power that we have in Jesus? Paul says, it's so powerful, it is ultimately shown, it's ultimately shown that when Jesus was dead, he was raised to life by this power. This power is such that it can take things that are dead and not just resuscitate them, not just bring them back to life as it was, but can resurrect it, which means bring it back to a new kind of life that can no longer be touched by sin and death. That is the nature of the power that is available to us by the Spirit in Christ. And that's one of the reasons why, for me as a pastor, for you as a friend or colleague or neighbor, when you have people come to you and say something which infers either directly or indirectly that they believe that they're beyond the grace of God, they're beyond God's love, they're a lost cause, they're too bad, they're, um, God could never love them because they're not religious or whatever they have in their mind, whatever barrier is there. We need to find a gracious, strong way of challenging that view and rebuking it ultimately, of saying, you're actually wrong. That's not true. No one is beyond the grace and love and power of God. And I've met people who in different ways have said to me, Jeff, you're a pastor, like, you've probably been pretty good your whole life and you have a pretty sheltered imagination. You don't know the kind of stuff that I've done, the kind of things that I've been into. You don't understand my perversions or my betrayals or my deceptions. And I can confidently say to anybody, 
None of that matters. The power that is available in Jesus can take dead things and make them alive. And the power of the gospel is not Jesus taking bad people and making them good. The essential power of the gospel is Jesus taking dead people and making them alive. And it doesn't matter the nature of why you are so dead in your sins. God has the power to regenerate your entire life and to give you a new life. Your past, your sin, your mistakes, your betrayals, your perversions, thought, word, and deed in their totality are no match for God's redeeming, forgiving, loving power. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There's nothing that can inhibit when you come to God and say, I want to become a Christian, I want forgiveness, I want newness of life. God says, oh, I'd love to be able to help you out, but you've got this thing. And that's a stumbling block from my end of things. So, whoops, that's not an offer. You can come to God with the filthiest, dirtiest, uh, sin-stained life. And God can clean you and make you new. Now, when we talk about this power that we have in Christ, this is what haunted me all week, is why don't I experience that power? Why don't I know that power? Why don't I epinosis that power? Like, I get it. As if, like, I read these Bible verses. I get it. I know the right answer is we have power in Jesus, but I don't always have contact knowledge of it. Why, why not? And that's a, that's a real question I'm asking myself. And that sent me on a little deep dive because I was like, man, I want to have access to that power because that isn't a lived experience for me. Maybe it's not supposed to be a lived experience in the sense that I always feel it, but Paul makes it very clear. This is on offer and we can walk in this power, but I don't sense that I am. Why not? Well, I think there's three reasons. Number one, we might be extinguishing or quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Quench means to extinguish a fire, put it out. The Bible makes it very clear that we cannot lose the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed. You are possessed. You are now God's possession. But you absolutely can contain, smother, and ultimately quench the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. You can... Um, you can contain and limit the Holy Spirit's influence. Even though it is, you are in Christ, you are saved, it's not an issue of salvation, but it is an issue of powerfully moving into life as a disciple who is connected to the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can cause distress in such a way that the Holy Spirit's power is limited in its ability to, in a sense, flow or move or breathe and in three reactions. And I think that, you know, there's a whole deep dive you could do there, but I think probably a big source of that for most people is just unconfessed sin. And not just unconfessed, but undealt with sin, confession and repentance, where essentially there's a sin that the Holy Spirit has brought to mind, he's illuminated something, and we're like, eh, I'd rather that be kept in the dark, that's okay. And the Holy Spirit gently brings it into the light, and we're like, eh, I'd rather that be in the dark. Because, like, some sins, I, I, I totally agree. These need to, be, need to be out of my life. But if these are kind of like my pet sins. Don't mind these. 
And if they, if they have kind of a, just a within reason, moderate sway in my life, I don't think I have to like get rid of them. That seems a little extreme. So I'm totally with you, Jesus. I just want to kind of carry this in my backpack of sorts. And when we do that, when we don't actually confess the sin and then say, okay, God, how do I, through your grace and through a process usually, how do I put this sin to death? That can quench the Spirit's fire. Because the Spirit wants to burn bright, bring illumination, bring power, and if we are essentially saying, oh, I totally want that, but I also want to nurture sin's power in my life too. There's a warning there that our experience day-to-day can become, oh, I just feel, I don't know, flat. When I hear other Christians talk about joy or power or whatever it is, I just don't experience that, like, ever. Maybe we need to look into our hearts, invite the Holy Spirit to bring something to mind. Number two, it might just be that you're living for Jesus from yourself. I'm guilty of this massively. Not that I'm not guilty of these other things. I totally am. But this is, is the major one for me. That in Galatians 3.3, Paul says to the Galatian church, are you guys foolish? Like, are you guys dumb? Because after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And what he means by that is, so you started your Christian life by walking in the Spirit, but it's an ascent, what you've done now is say, oh, I've got it from here, God. I'm okay. I can do it. I, like, I'm strong enough now. Like, thank you, God, but like tap out, and like I'll take, the, I'll take it from here. So I'm going to try and live like Jesus without, um, without a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. We have six covenant affirmations as a denomination. One of them is we affirm conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And it comes out of this idea that you can't live a Christian life in your own power alone. You do have to bring something to the table. There's a participatory element. And there's a deep mystery here. And I'm very much confused by it in a lot of ways. But I think it at least means that I start my day and move through my day with Holy Spirit, help me in this. On the tip of my tongue with a lot of things. Will you help me, God? You've called me to do these things. I believe this is what's set out for me today. Would you give me your strength? Even just that prayer shows the dependence on the Holy Spirit and invites the Holy Spirit to work with us instead of just plowing through, doing things in our own willpower, which will work, and it will be fruitful for a season, but then we're going to get tired, we're going to get burnt out. So maybe the problem is we've just kind of drifted away from learning to consciously depend on the Holy Spirit even by inviting the Holy Spirit to empower us for what we have to do today and this week and this month. And the last, thing, the last thing is, it might just be an issue of what kind of power you're expecting. Sometimes our expectations of what being filled with the power, accessing this power, or the power of the Holy Spirit is supposed to look like or it's supposed to feel like. And so it's actually happening, but we're expecting more like Wonder Woman. We want like, superhero power. We just saw the Incredible 2 movie yesterday. And that's the way our culture thinks about power. I have my normal capacities, but then I get a super capacity that allows me to do a bunch of awesome stuff, but it doesn't necessarily change the fundamental nature of who I am. It's just a new tool through which to exert my will on life. The reason why I show Wonder Woman there is because uh, Wonder Woman is connected 
to the city of Ephesus. That's where Wonder Woman, the comic book character, is derived from. Ephesus, in Greek lore, was founded by a tribe of Amazonian women. And what was the god, what was the great god of Ephesus? It was Artemis. It was the Roman name. What was the Greek name? No, Artemis is the Greek name. What was the Roman name? Diana. What's Wonder Woman's name? Diana Prince. Diana Prince, princess, princess derived from the Amazons. And of course, what was the temple to Diana in Ephesus? It was one of the seven what? Wonders of the world. So Wonder Woman is a... Now, I'm not saying if you watch Wonder Woman, you're a heathen or anything. I'm just saying that this is where it comes from. That's a neat little tie-in. And this is what the Ephesians would have understood. Power is might, is super capacity to exert your will in the world and to get things done. You make other people subject to you. That's what power is. So when God empowers me, that's what it's going to look like. I'll be able to exert my will over other people. I'll get to occupy the top of the power pyramid in life. That's what empowerment, certainly empowerment by God will look like, right? And then Jesus comes and shows us the nature of true power. That Jesus, filled with the Spirit, goes about teaching and healing and caring for and welcoming sinners and forgiving, using his power to serve. And he even warned his disciples. He said, you know, there's, there's leaders in, in the heathen, pagan world, and they use their positions of authority to exert power over other people, but not so with you. I want you to be people who wash one another's feet. What? A life of service? Oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's right. That's why you need supernatural power to do it well. It doesn't come naturally. It comes naturally to you to lord it over other people to dominate over other people, to say, my will be done, even if it's a cost of other people's will or God's will. But it takes supernatural power to say, may your will be done in my life. May your kingdom come. May my kingdom, my empire go. I'm living for you, Jesus. When we hear about the Holy Spirit's dynamite-like power, we're like, yeah, dynamite, go get the bad guys. The dynamite is the power that the Holy Spirit uses to break apart the hardness of our own heart. The power to put to death things in our life that need to be put to death. And the power to bring to life things in us that need to be brought to life. We're receiving power not as an excuse to do wrong, but as strength to do right. This is power for godly living. And it's not power that gets us out of automatically hard situations. Again, remember, Paul's talking about, I want you to know God's hope and God's riches, but all, you know, you know what? I want you to know God's power. God has amazing power for your life. I'm under house arrest, chained to a guard. I'm the very picture of powerlessness because Paul isn't equating the power that's on access by the Holy Spirit as freedom from any hardships. It's in my hardships these things don't define my identity. These things aren't going to interfere in my mission. These things aren't going to interfere with my joy. These things aren't going to interfere with my intimacy with Jesus. In fact, they might even enhance them in some ways. I have power to kratos, to overcome anything that happens in my life. I can do 
all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul writes a year later after Ephesians to the Philippians, again, under house arrest. This is power for godly living. And so sometimes we're asking for God's power and what we're waiting for is power over other things instead of, God, will you fill me so that I can love and serve you well and love and serve my neighbor well? And maybe if that was the prayer and more of our intent, more of my intent when I pray, there would be more supernatural power in my life. But as, almost, as long as I'm looking for worldly power, I think God's going to pull the brakes on that because that's not the power that's on offer in Christ. It's power to take dead things and make them alive to the glory of God. So quenching the spirit, living Christian life on your own terms, wrong expectations for spiritual empowerment, those are all a source of spiritual powerlessness. Which one of those might you need to address in your life this week? Okay, lastly, quickly, last few verses. Paul is talking about this power that has raised Christ to the right hand of the Father, Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Again, it's just synonyms. Paul, some people take these verses and try and break it down and say, oh, Paul's talking about heavenly beings and realities and demons and uh, substructures and, and levels, and that, that's, missing, that's missing the point. Paul is saying Jesus has been exalted over all powers and principalities and dominions. Whatever language you want to use, whatever angle you want to take, Whatever you come up with, whatever name that can even be named, Jesus is above that. You serve the Lord, not amongst other lords, but the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And when he's talking about authority and power and dominion, we'll get into this a little bit later, but certainly in Ephesians 6, Paul's making it clear. He's not primarily talking about worldly powers. He's talking about spiritual powers. Because in Ephesus, magic was a big deal. People were highly superstitious. There was a lot of idolatry, a lot of uh, the practice of magic. In order to uh, avoid or repel negative spiritual forces, because the, the, the baseline default for people was there's a lot of evil spiritual forces in this world, and that's why there's so much suffering. And so we're kind of at the mercy of these forces, so we have to figure out ways to appease them or to hold them off. And Paul says, oh, Ephesians, like that game's over. Like you don't need it. That's, you're in Christ now. You serve the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. These other powers, they can't touch you. It's not like, oh, Jesus, the devil, who will win? It's not yin and yang. Like, no, no, no. Jesus, all of these other powers, even the great Diana, the great um, uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, she's under the foot of Jesus. You, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's no, there's no power that can touch you. You are secure in Christ. One commentator says, this flourish of power and dominion, every title, not only in the present age, but in the age to come, it says, this underlines the universality of Christ's rule over any imagined cosmic force, and it brings home to believers that there's no possible justification for considering themselves under the power the, um, the control of such powers. You serve the risen king, and not just any king, but the king of kings. In verse 22, and God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Again, just note some of the language. Jesus has been given 
headship over everything for the church, meaning if you're in the church, you're in a place of privilege because you are connected to the ultimate authority. And so everything that is happening in and through the church is being done for God's glory and for your good and for the mission of the church. We're not connected to one of the lesser gods and maybe we can win the battle on this level and who knows though because there are just forces above and below there. Paul says, no, it's not like that. We are in Christ. He's even going to say later on, we're seated with Christ in some mystical way in the heavenlies. And so our mission, our purpose, our identity, our inheritance, all those things, all these spiritual blessings, they're secure in Christ. And so you move into the world with confidence. Ephesians, you don't open your door and think, oh, is there a devil behind this bush? And who's going to get me? And oh, what are the forces? Oh, I'm scared, I'm scared. Really? Jesus is Lord. So walk like Jesus is Lord. You're a saint. You're a holy one in him. You're wearing you're wearing Christ. You're in Mickey Mouse. Walk into the world like it. Walk with that confidence, with that boldness. Because there is no power in this world that can even dent Jesus and his agenda. I had no idea how to finish this message. So I ended up saying, I think this would be a great prayer because Paul is praying it for the Ephesians. I thought, let's end this by appropriating this prayer for ourselves. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to invert this prayer from a first-person perspective and pray this for us as a church. And then uh, Justin can come up and lead us in a final song. God, today I want to ask and put it on our hearts to keep asking that you, glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. God, I pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we can know the hope to which you have called us, that we can know the riches of your glorious inheritance in us, and that, so that we can know your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, God, is like the working of your mighty strength which you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. We praise you, God, that you have placed all things under Jesus' feet, and you've appointed him to be the head over everything for us. For we are his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thank you for this truth, God. Amen.